Welcome to the Politics of Fish podcast, the American Sport Fishing Association's bi-weekly podcast covering the people, organizations, and issues that impact the recreational fishing industry. I'm your host, Mike Leonard, Vice President of Government Affairs for ASA. On this episode, my guest is marine wildlife artist and conservationist Guy Harvey, who joined by phone from his home in the Cayman Islands. His depictions of sea life, especially of marlin and other sport fish, make Guy Harvey one of the most recognized and revered individuals in the sport fishing community. His art has been reproduced in prints, posters, t-shirts, jewelry, clothing, and other items. But what I wanted to focus on was his advocacy for marine conservation. Fans of his art may not be aware that he founded the Guy Harvey Research Institute at Nova Southeastern University, which studies marine fish ecology and conservation, as well as the Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation, an organization that funds scientific research and educational initiatives. We touch on everything from Dr. Seuss to marine protected areas. I found it to be a fascinating and enlightening conversation and hope that you do too. So without further ado. All right, I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Guy Harvey. Uh, Guy, your bio refers to you as an artist, scientist, diver, angler, conservationist, and explorer fiercely devoted to his family and his love of the sea. Uh, that's about the coolest description anyone could ever have. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, um, that covers a lot of ground. And, um, you know, over the last, well, nearly four decades, uh, we touched on a bit of all of those. And so I try and make them all work at the same time. All right, well, let's start, I guess, at the beginning. You were born in Germany, but you grew up in Jamaica. Uh, how did your connection with the marine environment start to where it's helped propel you to where you are today? We were very lucky growing up in Jamaica in the, in the late 50s and early 60s to have parents who loved the outdoors. Uh, my dad was a, a cattle farmer. My mom was an even better cattle farmer. And, uh, but she was also a naturalist. And she loved bird watching and horse riding. They were, they were very good uh, anglers hunters. Um, we did a lot of that stuff from very early on. And so it was ingrained in me from, from very early days. You obviously spent a lot of time out on the water. How much had fishing itself played a role in that connection you built with, with the ocean? Well, my dad, I've been reading through my mom's diaries. My, my dad really got his first boat in about 1958, which was made from a dugout tree it was a, the the trunk of a large uh, cotton tree we call them in jamaica and you you put a 20 horsepower johnson on the back of that and all of a sudden you're fishing offshore in waters that in those days had a lot of fish so we would go uh, early very early on from five six years old and we weren't allowed to go further offshore and catch blue water fish until we were a certain age i think it was like seven but the introduction to you know, bonitas and blackfin tuna and barracudas and kingfish and wahoos and stuff like that uh, were all very formative, uh, exciting. And also because mum was a, an avid snorkeler, we started um, snorkeling with her as well. And I enjoyed quite a bit of spearfishing when I was a teenager. So all through that time, Mike, it was just like planting the seed, planting the seed, the desire to learn more about the marine environment um, and formalize it, actually, which is what I ended up doing in the end. Right. So you end up going on to higher education all around um, marine science, which I think is fairly atypical for uh, <laughs> someone who's primarily known for their art. Where did that um, marine science background intersect with the art that you're so well known for? Was there a correlation there or were these two fairly independent paths? No, they were very definitely uh, assisting one another. And um, 
you know, eventually when I became a member of the Society of Animal Artists, which is the international organization uh, to which you're nominated, all of, the, all of the members, whether you're a terrestrial or aquatic artist, are very accomplished biologists and naturalists in their own right. And so I, I learned that my, my learnings about fish, my doctorate in fisheries science, fisheries biology, uh, was so important in really conveying the, the, the reality of nature on the media or in the media that I was using at the time, whether it's pen and ink or watercolor or whatever. <clears throat> and so I really pushed hard to, to continue diving. Well, I learned diving very early on back in 73. I've been diving for over 50 years. And just being with nature was probably one of the most important parts of being authentic in this whole uh, production cycle, so to speak. And of course, that's very important too, you know, in other aspects of our work in like underwater cinematography and making educational documentaries and stuff as you go forward. But to be um, a good diver, a safe diver, um, able to take advantage of all the opportunities that are presented to you uh, in the ocean was really important. And I, I got going with that very early on. You're obviously well known for your art, but what I find particularly fascinating is what you've uh, given back to the marine environment through improving scientific understanding. So you have the Guy Harvey Research Institute at Nova Southeastern University, uh, the Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation, and, and this is where a tremendous amount of scientific research and educational programs are being done, all focused around conservation and sustainable marine environments. Uh, what are some examples of some focus areas or if you have specific projects that have been conducted through your research programs, um, ones you're particularly proud of? I, I do. I have lots that I'm proud of, but Let's go back a little bit because we just covered about 20 years in 30 seconds. Um, because the, the formation of the Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation, the Research Institute, all took another decade after I started the business back in 1986, the business of licensing my art, which was kind of frowned on by the same organization I, I was mentioning, the Society of Battle Artists. Not that artists didn't want to sell their work and derivatives of it, but um, they, they very rarely, if ever, licensed it out on apparel or um, other vehicles, so to speak. Art was art. So in, in building the business, Mike, over a 10-year period, I was then able to cut back some a percentage of sales back into scientific research work through Nova Southeastern University, have a base through which to operate, and really begin what we're now talking about, which is um, doing more research projects, making more meaningful contributions to fish, better fisheries management and making a difference. And that has now been going on for 23 years. So it grew as the business grew. Of course, you know, I always say it takes cash to care. And all of the research work uh, and our ability to, to execute it was based on income generated from the licensing programs. We then gained momentum, of course, and joined forces with a lot of other collaborating organizations got some corporate support. And of course, um, now you can really do stuff because you got the funding. What I'm so impressed by is that you've invested so much back into the marine environment. And do you attribute that back to just your, your conservation ethic, your personal passion? Is there a, is there a business side to this too? Um, I guess how much of this philanthropy do you, do you view as just you know, your own personal passion and desire to ensure that a healthy environment exists into the future? 
Well, the personal personal passion definitely is a very strong influence, but you can't do this on your own. So I have a very good team around me, but I would say collaborations with with other like-minded organizations, um, especially universities, especially in Florida, um, has been very helpful. Um, I think establishing a track record in the research arena has been essential. I remember when I signed up with Professor Mahmoud Shivji at the, at the GHRI, he said, you know, we're, we're, this is serious. We're going to go and do a lot of good work. And as long as you're in, I'm in. And we have had a 22-year relationship, Professor Shibji and I. We know exactly what the other one needs and wants and how, you know, we want to make a difference and how our reputations are also at stake in, in terms of the authenticity and the meaningfulness, the, the relevance of the work. This is not what we call pure research work. This is applied research work. So everything we touch and do, every project we conjure up literally uh, or initiate uh, is for a specific reason targeted at a specific species. At the same time, there's a storytelling component. You can actually tell your audience, which is everybody, a little bit about the life history of the animals, the resource issues they face, how you can get involved and how you can help and make a meaningful change. The problem, Mike, is that the standard or regular uh, conservation methods just don't seem to be working that well. Uh, There are some (laughs) rays of hope, some good examples of where conservation has worked uh, because it's, it's a sort of collaboration of many partners. But generally, it's not. And that's because the human population continues to grow, continues to overexploit without, you know, better regulation, better research work. And so this is why we launched this Marine Science Education Initiative beginning in Florida, but will eventually, through our, you know, our track record, get into other countries as well. Yeah, I was really interested. I, I learned about your Marine Science Education Program recently. Um, I'm hoping it soon makes its way up here to Virginia, where I am and where my kids are going to school, um, where you actually have several different programs and curriculums. And it's, it's far beyond just developing the content, but really from start to finish, you're ensuring that the content that's being developed is actually getting into the classrooms. It's actually educating students about the marine environment and conservation. So talk a little bit about more about this and, and can you give some uh, overviews of these programs? This, this is a big project and um, it initiated during the pandemic, partially because my daughter Jessica and I were doing uh, weekly Facebook lives, normally on a Saturday morning. And I, I didn't realize just how, how watched they were until, you know, you go to the Miami Boat Show like we were just at and, you know, about a third of the people mentioned, hey, I watch your Saturday morning shows. And it was just like, I had no idea. You know, um, my son Alex runs the social media side of our business and the marketing, and he'll give me numbers, but it's like double Dutch to me. You know, I'm not in that realm. I just talk about what I like to talk about and what I like to do. And so born out of that came this Marine Science Education Initiative because it took a lot of our content and our footage, turned it into 30-second to two-minute nuggets that were easily absorbed by kids, and we started this whole program. So Steve Roden, who's the CEO uh, of our companies, both the the foundation and the for-profit side, he's like the sort of overseer. Um, He has a background in education, and he said, I I know what to do with this. Uh, We can take this and and make it a, a real project for the foundation. And I welcomed it right away because, you know, you got you got to keep changing, growing with the times. And having done uh, marine research work for two decades, or 
more than two decades, we needed another sort of tool to help engage with the public. And this was the perfect one, given that we had all this other content uh, from, from years of documentary filmmaking, mostly based on our research work, and that's mostly on large pelagic um, animals, sharks, tunas, and billfish. But more and more we see issues facing the reef systems. You know, where I live here in, in the Cayman Islands, we have the same problems as they have in the Florida Keys, uh, all throughout the Caribbean. All these detrimental effects that the population expansion has had on over-extraction and pollution, basically. So to put this in a capsule, uh, make it digestible for first the teachers, uh, to activate the teachers and then see the relevance of doing this and then turn this into a proper curriculum, especially designed by people who write this kind of work and make it available to schools for free was a big task. And we had to expand our staff. Uh, we had to expand our relationships. We worked through uh, a lot of existing organizations like Discovery Ed, like um, Florida Virtual School, Oceans First, the Department of Education in Florida, and we have got assistance from a lot of different areas in the, in, the, in the state administration to get this going. The reason being that there really isn't a, a good teachable marine science education course available anywhere in Florida, in Florida, sorry, to K to 12 in that age. You know, Nova, where we're based, Nova Southeastern University, has a very good undergrad and postgrad course, but nothing is out there for the K to 12. So to go back to the real reason we're doing this, it's, it's about getting everybody on board about A, the life history of the sea, and B, how we've, we've used it and abused it, how it can be used sustainably, but in the long run to use it sustainably. Otherwise we are sunk. I would imagine for schools and teachers that are hungry for content, especially something as um, interesting as the marine environment that uh, you're getting a lot of positive feedback. How is it? Where is it now? And I guess, where do you see this going into the future in terms of scaling it up? You're absolutely right. Everybody we talk to is on board. So the first thing was to get uh, you know, some corporate uh, sponsorships. We're going to hire a grant writer to, to do that stuff. We're going to hire um, you know, another development person to help raise more money. Um, the activation part is, is through, as I said, through the sort of aerial bombardment through Discovery Ed, where you're reaching theoretically 50 million kids. Uh, and 5 million teachers, but through a, a, a free online um, available source. The real hard work begins on the ground where you have to teach the teachers, and we just started that uh, two weeks ago, uh, going to different schools, uh, different education, different counties, so, so to speak, in Florida, getting the teachers on board, and then they can teach the kids. But we have to have, bring that to scale so it reaches all 67 counties uh, in Florida, and we'll be doing that by getting on board all the, the science educators within the different counties. And then we find a corresponding corporate sponsor within that county to help with the actual real activation and what we call the get salty experience for the kids where they find a facility to actually get wet and, and look at stuff, you know, in, in the flesh, so to speak. Uh, because that's just as important as the, the sort of uh, theoretical science behind marine science education. So we're off and running, and we're gathering momentum. And of course, again, it all goes back to the amount of money that we can raise. And I think a lot of corporations, are they realize that the conservation is good for business, 
and that um, they need to be responsible and, and help in this, in this uh, cause. Well, as an industry that's been focused on schools as well in terms of getting fishing in schools um, and getting more youth participating and actually engaging in the sport, it seems like there's a natural connection here between the science and education program and also kind of that hands-on experience too, where, where hopefully there's some opportunities there too. Is that part of the, the, the program as well as, um, is actually sort of getting them in the field and, and participating in some level of interaction with the resource? Well, absolutely. Fishing is, is one of the only ways, apart from diving, that you can interact with the natural environment. You know, the actual interaction is one thing. The, it's, it's learning about the animals that you're catching and releasing, hopefully, complying with, with local regulations. And, you know, I remind people every single day that the, the minimum sizes, the closed areas, the closed seasons, they're all there so that you can enjoy what you do in a sustainable way. They're not figures picked out of the air. They're all based on science and it will allow you and, and many generations to continue doing what you're doing. Otherwise, it's a smash and grab and everything will be consumed and gone, uh, you know, in our, in our lifetime. We've already seen these changes and, um, you know, conservation extraction can work sustainably, but not without uh, protections as well at the same time. And it's very important to teach kids this from a very early age. Well, uh, jumping back to the actual condition of the green environment. You've touched on several overriding threats, not just to large pelagics, but really the marine environment as a whole, overexploitation, just the general effects of, of development of coastal communities, coral challenges, not to be a downer, but <laughs> what do you, are those the biggest threats you're seeing? Are there other threats that you've seen to the marine environment that really warrant devoted attention? I'm really glad you asked that question, Mike, because there, there is a lot of hope out there uh, we see it every day. Um, we see the education part of it as being a, a, an important component going forward. But yeah, if you want to make a list of all the sort of man's de detrimental effects on the ocean, it's, it's unending. And when you're confronted by some of the statistics, like there's only 2% of live coral left in the Florida Keys, whereas here in, in Cayman, we have uh, about 9 or 10% in Grand Cayman. In Little Cayman, which is pretty undeveloped or is really undeveloped there's about 23 percent of living coral left which is probably the highest in the caribbean you know all, all the different human influences on marine life are just amazingly poor uh, especially overfishing uh, in islands where you have ag agriculture and rivers you know sedimentation um, you've got coastal developments as you suggested um, and then you add to that the, the other long-term, much greater effects of climate change, um, temperatures rising, uh, acidification. It's like, where does this end or how can we stop this? Marine systems are very resilient. And if you just take the brakes off of the saw during the pandemic here, um, less traffic, less people, uh, less pollution, things come back very quickly. And so it's a matter of, <laughs> and I'm going to use the word that a lot of people hate, uh, marine protected areas, because rather than protect an individual species in a certain area, if they overfish a snapper or a grouper or whatever, it's much better to throw a legal fence around a larger area and let the whole area recover. Fishing or extraction can take place outside of the boundaries of that. And of course, there's going to be an overflow effect, which has been measured already. But marine pro protected areas need to get to about, I'm going to say 30% to 40% to really make a difference 
in what we're doing and how we are to be sustainable going forward. So knowing that, well, a great example is just two years ago here in Cayman, the government extended the marine protected areas from 15% to 45%. So no take in 45% of our shallow reef environments over to the drop-off, which is a very meaningful change. And if that could happen in many countries around the Caribbean, they would all see the change. Um, and so it's, it's not to stop fishing. We're not an anti-fishing lobby or organization. It's to do it sustainably. And with more research work, uh, more conservation, more um, education, we can achieve that. It's very easily done. And in two or three or five years, you can see a big difference happening. Drilling back into that controversial term, marine protected areas, you know, in the U.S., we've we've always recognized it's a valuable tool in the toolbox, uh, but also recognize, you know, with a pretty robust fisheries management system in the U.S., it has its place. But as you're seeing this approach in other countries that maybe don't have the level of enforcement regulations, et cetera, is that where you see maybe placing a higher value on marine protected areas because there's not that other governance in place to do the species-specific regulations and, and enforcement and, and education and everything else that we have uh, in large part of the U.S. That, that's all correct. And, and so how do, you, how do you get the politicians to wake up and, and, and you know, just see the sort of forest for the trees? Unfortunately, as we overconsume marine resources, the value of these individual resources goes up through the roof. It's a bit like the real estate market. The value of a, of a living fish, a living snapper, a grouper, a stingray, a shark, a conch, um, has just gone up exponentially in the last decade. Because people, in spite of all of the overexploitation, people still want to experience nature. And I keep telling the governments here, and it's the same throughout the Caribbean, they don't want to come here and stay in your Ritz or your, you know, your, your Marriott hotels or whatever. They want to experience the water. They want to be beside the water, in the water, or on the water. And along with that goes the marine life that you know, is, is there at the same time. If you have dead reefs, people are not going to come. And so it works all the way back to your socioeconomic well-being, Mr. Minister or Mr. Member of Parliament or whatever you are, to, to place a much higher value, dollar value, on every individual fish over which you have jurisdiction than you ever have done before. All right, that connection between the environment and economies is often missed, but uh, clearly important. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's fundamental, Mike. It's absolutely fundamental. And a, a lot of people don't know simply because they've never had education, any education in that realm whatsoever, and they haven't connected the dots. Uh, again, having young kids, uh, we read a lot of Dr. Seuss, and I'm, I'm reminded of the quote from Lorax, uh, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And I think that relates quite closely to all the work you're doing, but especially that the education program is if people don't know about these resources and especially about the challenges that they're facing, it's hard for them to care. And really for the first step to getting activation uh, and advocacy for the marine environment, it comes from caring. And that's where, um, from my vantage point, the work that you're doing to get this information, especially to people when they're young, when they're in school, is really going to be critical because to have any hope at addressing the, the monumental threats that, uh, that the oceans are facing, it's going to take that level of passion developing really at an early age. I imagine that's a lot of what's going into your thinking here. It, it really is. And um, as much as we've traveled, 
around the Caribbean, Central America, you see the same mistakes being made time and time again. And so, like, we have, you know, to one of your earlier questions, we have big projects going on in Panama now, Costa Rica, in the Galapagos, uh, that are very meaningful. We're collaborating in the Galapagos, for example, with the, the, the Charles Darwin Research Institute there on, on tracking scalloped uh, hammerheads and silky sharks, which are the two really important oceanic species, which, which not only drive the um, long-range dive industry, so there's a, a meaningful socioeconomic impact there, but also they're the target of the, the shark fin trade. And so their numbers have been really reduced, I mean, down to a small percentage of their pre-exploitation levels. And the efforts are, are now to try and help all those governments that share the sea right there, the Eastern Tropical Pacific, that's Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica, Mexico, to have a consensus of what can be done, what needs to be done, uh, provide them with the data and, and get the, the commercial industrialized high seas, long line fishing and, and netting out of there completely. Just get rid of it because um, it, it can't last if you let that keep happening. And um, one of the other problems with all of this, and I, I don't want to get too involved with the politics, is that in many of these countries, these developing countries, they, they owe so much money to you know, um, China in particular uh, and other countries that um, they can't resist. So there has to be some other way of educating them about sustainable use of fisheries, uh, alternative use of fisheries, uh, the value of ecotourism, um, and, and show them the path rather than doing what they're doing right now. You mentioned marine protected areas and just mentioned sharks too. So I'll focus on another increasingly, unfortunately contentious issue within the sport fishing mm -hmm. community <clears throat> is sharks yeah. in the US, which, you know, for me personally, I remember at a very early age, a lot of what drove me and my interest in the environment was, was sharks. And I think that's true for a lot of people too. There's just something about these creatures that are inherently fascinating. Right. What we hear a lot from our members increasingly, though, are shark conflicts with fishing itself and deviation issues, getting the fish to shore and dealing with, with sharks who seem not only to be getting more abundant, but also um, smarter. What's your overall view on that particular conflict? And do you see an ability to hopefully, I don't know, find peace here where we can respect and, and allow the shark populations to do their thing, but also hopefully figure out a way to avoid these fishing conflicts. Is that, is that achievable in your mind? Absolutely. I gave a presentation to the FWC in Miami in, in May about this exact thing uh, to the commissioners. Um, it, it goes back to the fact that, that sharks have been so overexploited, particularly in the southern U.S., that the, the shark fin trade you know, made its mark everywhere, and people kill the sharks by the kajillion to cut their fins off and sell them to the Orient. And, and sharks declined in unbelievable numbers. And if you know anything about their biology, their reproductive biology, they're a slow-growing, long-lived animal, a, a bit like humans, and they, they don't give birth to very many pups. So if you whack them too hard, which is what happened, they can't recover quickly. The same with turtles. They're very long-lived, slow-growing animals. And so what happened was in the 70s and 80s, <clears throat> the shark populations really crashed, especially the coastal sharks. I'm talking tigers, hammerheads, bull sharks, lemons, reef sharks. They all, they all went downhill. So protections were put in place by the FWC and other people. You know, you have state waters and federal waters. Uh, the state waters have different laws from federal waters. 
the protections worked. The sharks came back, but over a period of time. Of course, the amount of people fishing has grown uh, and people swimming has grown in the last two decades. So the interactions are going to be more and more as these species of sharks actually make a bit of a recovery. And so what is happening is what I call shifting baseline syndrome in reverse, which is shifting baseline syndrome is where you, you get used to what you see around you on any given day or given week or given year. And you tend, like all humans do, to forget what it was like 10 years ago. So you actually go back 10 years and say, oh, wow, there were, there were a lot more hogfish and Nassau groupers and, and black groupers than there are now. Why has this happened? It's because of overfishing. Well, this is shifting baseline syndrome in reverse, in that people younger than us, well, your age, not my age, but never saw sharks around because there weren't any. And now they're making, they've made a comeback because of protections working. They go, where the hell did all these sharks come from? Well, guess what? They're not an invasive species like lionfish or something else. They were there all the time. And now that they've come back a bit, you're interacting with them more and more. And yes, sure, they're, they're smart animals. They wouldn't have been around here for 400 million years if they weren't very successful. And one of the successes is to take advantage of feeding opportunities, which is what they're doing. They're just being sharks. So, um, you know, that's my position. The conservation methods put in place are working. They need to be there. We need sharks for a healthy environment. And guess what? There were a lot more sharks 100 years ago than there are now, a lot more. And it's the same for the Goliath groupers. The people, the people who want to cull sharks and cull groupers really don't know what they're talking about. None of these animals have come back anywhere close to their pre-exploitation levels, and yet you want to start killing them again? It's absolute insanity. I watch a show uh, with a, a host called uh, Josh Jorgensen sometimes on Black Tip H. I don't know if you see it on YouTube. I took him to Panama two weeks ago to do a show because he'd never caught a black marlin before. But he is one of the few guys, the fishing hosts, who are very active, knowledgeable, um, exciting stuff. And he uses these big sharks, uh, part of his show, because they're exciting to catch. I mean, they're all released, but it's people are looking for entertainment, excitement, action, underwater, foam, you know, jumps, all the rest of it. Well, you're getting it from these sharks. And so I commended him for sort of putting a, a spotlight on an alternative use for this problem. Anyway, the FWC will come up with, with some kind of assessment of which species are really causing the problems. And it looks like uh, the bull shark is definitely the primary candidate. Maybe the sandbar, maybe uh, the black tip. Some people say, like Bouncer Smith has said, not the black tip. Um, they just eat fish. It's really the bull sharks. And so I can imagine going down the road that, that to keep the, the anglers quiet or satisfied or feel that they're doing something, the FWC will have some kind of culling system on bull sharks, which to me is crazy given that, you know, sharks around the world are really in a bad way. Well, it's an example of the complexity of the marine environment issues that yeah. uh, we work on and focus on is you've got uh, a science element to it, the socioeconomic element to it, uh, these conservation challenges. Um, they're Yeah. And that so I, species I, relate to each other. It's, it can be a tough Yeah, it, it's good that you take um, historical records. And I tell everybody, and, and I hope they really do, um, if they listen to this podcast, read a book called The Unnatural History of the Sea by Callum Roberts, who's a, a Scottish fishery scientist. 
But he documents, you know, man's overexploitation of marine resources from about a thousand years ago, based on explorers' logs and, and um, diaries and journals and all that. You know, going from the amazing abundance in the North Sea of Iceland, of Canada, the 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 cod, the all the other fish around there, and how we just systematically caught them all over a period of time, and it relates back to shifting baseline syndrome. You know what was there 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and what is there now? And why can't we get back to that sort of health of our oceans? It's not going to happen without education. That's the first thing. And secondly, you've got to combine it with really meaningful uh, conservation measures. And MPAs is one way to do it. Well, let's end on a, a positive note here. Do you see signs of, uh, of, of areas to focus on that can help, whether in a small way or in a large way, uh, help address some of these marine conservation challenges. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, having been to different countries and, and seen different approaches to fisheries management, the, the U.S. is by far the leading organization. Maybe Australia and New Zealand too have, have comparable organization in terms of, of fisheries control protection, sustainable use models, and so on. But the U.S. is actually doing a pretty pretty good job already. This is why, you know, with with so many different um, I don't know what you call them, um, influences pulling at these resources. We just need to have, you know, more education, more collaboration and more um, talking about the issues to really achieve sustainability. Most of the, the regulations that are in place right now are, are very effective. I think also people are going to have to just, just shift their, what they eat, um, eat less seafood. You know, fish farming is an option. While it has its problems, it does take the pressure off wild resources. And if you think about this, you know, fish and lobsters and stuff like that, some crabs, um, shellfish, are really the only wild animals we still harvest and, and, and consume. Everything else we eat is farmed. So why can't we have sustainable fish farms? I do fully believe that the, the tilapia, which is, I call it the indestructible fish, will save the world, <laughs> will save the world's oceans because you can grow them anywhere, they eat anything, they taste good, and, um, and people should be encouraged to go to that sort of source for marine you know, seafood rather than groupers and snappers and stuff like that, <clears throat> because that's, that's just unsustainable. There are other people who will say, well, fish farming has too many problems to be sustainable, and, and there are problems, but you get my point. Yeah. Well, um, I hate to end there because we talked to you. Aquaculture is a particularly fascinating topic yeah. too, and I agree with a lot of the points you made of um, the, the unique role of wild-caught fish relative to how we get protein everywhere. Else. <laughs> and, uh, and we can have you back on maybe to explore that more. So, uh, so Guy, I really appreciate your time. I'm a great admirer of your art, but even more an admirer of the incredible conservation work that you do um, throughout the world. And it's, I think, an inspiration for a lot of folks within the industry to to follow suit and uh, and put their passion back uh, into ensuring these resources are healthy and sustainable for the future. So I'm, I'm sure the listeners gained a lot out of this and uh, really appreciate the time and, and insights you shared with us. Well, thank you very much. And um, it's been great. So would love to come back anytime. Thanks so much, Guy. All right. Good luck out there. Good luck fishing. Thanks again to Guy Harvey for taking the time to share his thoughts and insights with us. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode, but in the meantime, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and share the Politics of Fish podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening, and tight lines.